Hey everyone, we've got a new pitch website, pitchpodcast.fm. Comment on your favorite episodes, get all the latest news and discuss the podcast with us, pitchpodcast.fm. If you become a subscriber, you'll be able to access real pitches and ad-free episodes. Watch member-only live streams starring us, your hosts, and ask questions we'll answer in future pitch episodes. Join us at pitchpodcast.fm and help us bring you more great content. You can find and subscribe to the premium episodes of this podcast at pitch.supportingcast.fm. Last week, we left you with a bit of a cliffhanger. Our guests, Carrie Weisberg and Liz Hanna, were entertaining and educating us all when Leah shared her recent correspondence with an Academy Award-nominated screenwriter from the 80s. This writer declined our invite to come on the show as a guest, but said they might be listening to pick up some pointers on how to pitch. Then Liz said she cried, having read a recent pitch for something she's producing. I want to know what about this person's pitch made her cry. So let's pick up right there and see what she has to say. This is great because I emailed a bunch of Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning screenwriters from the 60s onwards, and one of them who was nominated in the 80s got back to me And he said, uh, thanks for writing. I look forward to listening to your podcast and perhaps getting pitch pointers. I'm an absolute disaster at pitching. I have to write the whole script to get anywhere. Yeah. So it's like par for the course. Yeah, it it, it absolutely is. And I think like I, I recent, I'm producing and directing a movie that we just pitched and I'm not writing it. And the writer sent me the, the pitch document to like give notes on. And I was like, this is like, I cried reading it. And then I was like, this is like the best pitch I've ever read. And it was four pages long and he pitched it and was like, boom, boom, boom. Everybody like, if you'd like to do the movie with us, that'd be wonderful. But what I thought was great about his pitch that I've now completely stolen (laughs) for everything that I'll ever do. Yes, please share. Was that, you know, he did the thing that, you know, everybody tells you, which is like, why me? And things like that. And like set up the world. It's based on true story. So, you know, sort of the first page of the pitch was, let me set this up for you. Let me tell you what this is and like why it's why it matters. And then talked about, you know, then what the movie is kind of on on a on a global scale, you know, like tonally comps that work for it things like that and then was like let me tell you the characters and then in this telling of who the characters are tells the story of the movie and then that's it and it was and but like didn't commit to anything major in because it wasn't like he's like here's what happens in act one he just in sort of there was something incredibly clever about saying here's the characters and then tricking you into hearing the pitch for the movie when actually talking about the characters because then he didn't have to say anything too committal about the movie there were little you know he had like Smart. three scenes that were in there there was a couple you know we have obviously sort of like the beginning and the end and but more importantly he told the character arcs um and again it's it's a true story so there's certain things in there that like are gonna be pivotal to the movie movie's sort of trajectory but i thought it was really smart that he based it more off of like the emotional arc of the characters which as somebody who gravitates more towards that um felt quite dumb 
having someone else do it and be like, oh, yeah, I should have been doing that for the last 10 years. <laughs> um, but I think like it's I think pitching can sort of be anything you want it to be. I, I'm doing a pitch for something that I'm writing um, probably in the fall, but I've been working on it for a little bit. And I had had a version of it before I started working with this other writer on this movie and then started working with him. And I was like, well, I'm cutting that down dramatically. (laughs) And it's just so much more, you know, I think in some ways extremely specific about like, here are the movies that it's like, here's what I want somebody to feel when they watch it. Here's like what the characters I think feel like and will look like and will sort of like how they move and breathe. And then it's a little bit like, I don't know how the story goes, but here's like three set pieces and then I'm out. Um, I think for me, I I had sort of a revelation in working with this writer that was like, oh, I'm just going to keep it a little short and sweet and and move on. Yeah, I think it's funny to hear you say that because like the actor in me is like, that makes perfect sense. Like Mm -hmm. this is exactly how I want to be pitched if someone were to come pitch to me. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's just how I see the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of the training that I've had where it's like, how does this person move through space? Like, where do, where does this person go from the beginning to the end that it, it makes perfect sense? And I think that, like, we all are working to build this thing together. Yeah. The writers, the producers, the actors, the PAs, the COVID team, all of it needs to be symbiotic. And I think we forget when we're, I mean, you start years ahead of us mm-hmm. when you're writing something. Mm-hmm. But it all, that's why it makes sense yeah. to you that, that way. Because now you're, as a storyteller, you're like, oh, this is the story. Exactly. Um, okay, so one thing that I noticed about us that I don't know if I've, I'm sure I have at some point told you this, but when I'm writing, so every now and then I'll find, I'll be like listening to a song and I'm like, I got the scene. Mm-hmm. A song will come to me or a scene I'm writing and a song pops up in my brain and I'm like, it has to be in the background or like, you know, mm-hmm. we're going into the scene, it's in the car, whatever it is. I know you do this too. Mm-hmm. There's, you have, I think you have two things. You have a soundtrack that you listen to when you're writing. Mm-hmm. And you have specific songs that just like exist in mm-hmm. that world. Mm-hmm. How do you use them? Yeah, I make a playlist before I start any projects, which is like a step that is both feels like productive procrastination <laughs> and also is part of like how I can communicate the, the, the world to other people. Um, we didn't send a... I'm, I don't know if I made it before we pitched Plainville. I know I had it for the writer's room because it was part of like, you get court transcripts and text messages and here's the Spotify playlist. Um, (laughs) And it was really important to me for the room that like, that they understood tonally where I was coming from and where we wanted the characters to go. And there were certain songs that like, for certain characters and things like that i use it like as a um as like a map to getting back to somewhere you know like i i use it as something that when i'm thinking about the existence of something rather than it actually existing but like in that very fun time before you have to write it (laughs) and like the amorphous time when you're just like i'm not actually thinking about dialogue or scenes or how i'm gonna make it i'm just thinking about like the vibe and how I want people to feel and how I want to feel and what do I think about this character and what kind of music does he listen to and what kind of how does he she's like what does she put on when she is getting dressed to go out and things like that um 
And that feels so informative to me and helpful when I do get completely lost in the world of writing to just go back to. It's also something to me that like I, I joke about it, but like does feel like productive procrastination is that like if I'm stuck or I hit a wall, like putting that on and going for a walk or like doing laundry actually still feels like I'm getting work done because I'm, so. I'm, yeah, I'm like retracing my steps back to where I wanted to be. So it's, I've done it with every movie and I, I've done it. I did it with Plainville and with Plainville, um, two of the songs ended up in the show. Um, I mean, that show was so specific because like there were musical numbers that we had to write in the biggest part of, I think the biggest musical part of the series was the ending of the pilot when she sings, make you feel my love. And that was something that Patrick and I spoke about very early on in, in breaking the pilot was, you know, something that Michelle Carter was obsessed with glee. She also had sort of this fantasy world that she was living in. She, would use quotes from Glee as if they were her own words. So there was sort of this like device that existed in her world that we were trying to interpret to put into the television show, which was really hard. <laughs> and we kind of just, just, we were kind of talking about, it. I also had worked with Elle already and knew what she was capable of and also knew that she likes it when things are weirder and things are harder for her. And so part of it was kind of like, what would be the hardest thing to make her do (laughs) on the first week of shooting? And um, like, how could I torture her as much as possible? And um, so we wrote that into the series and wrote that into the pilot, um, particularly because we knew the only time I write any song into a series or into a movie is if I know that I need to tell everyone they should save money and spend on it. Spend that. It's I, I don't do it. If it's, if it's something for me that is just like a vibe thing, I'll say like something like this is playing, mm-hmm. you know, or like if it's diegetic or something like that, just so that it's sort of like a note to the reader that's like, you don't have to spend the money. You right. know, it's just like, this is a vibe check. Um, but if it's something that's really specific that I'm, I want to note for the studio, like, yes, you will have to spend money on this. Um, then I'll put it in there um, because, you know, you want them to, you know, if they don't ask about it, I'm not going to say anything, <laughs> but, right. but if it, if it comes up, then I want it, I want it to come up so that I can say like, yeah, tell me how much this will cost so that we know what we have to cut or not cut or how we can make the savings work in, in a responsible production way because it's, it is important. And so, um, we shot two versions of that, Well, we shot it twice. We shot that scene, um, I think like the second or third week of production. And then we shot it again um, the last week of production. And the first time we shot it, we did not have the rights. And so we shot a version that you could get away with. Um, we, we had the rights to the song. We didn't have the rights to showing um, all of Leah Michelle singing. Oh, and we had, so we had versions where you could cut away and cut back and, and not you. And, um, you know, use it as sort of sparingly as possible. And then we cut it and realized that like we needed, not only did we need that to be a much larger part of the scene, but like the blocking of how the original scene was constructed just didn't work. Yeah. And so then we reshot it um, 
so Elle had to do it again. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but like, like, look, I'll, there's truly not a, enough time in the world for me to talk about how obsessed I am with her and how wonderful she is and like how writing for somebody that good is, is like the most challenging thing you can do as a writer because nothing easy will work. Mm-hmm. Um, and she makes it look easy. And she makes it look easy. Um, but I, the thing that was one of the hardest things that we made her do on that show was that. And she spent a week before we reshot it every night after rap watching Leah, that performance by Leah Michelle and writing down all, she had like this crazy fucking serial killer notebook that just had like every physical move that Leah Michelle made in it. And she would like, and the time code and the reference so that she could completely mimic what she did. Cause that was what was written into the script. And And it's it's, terrifying. And it's terrifying. And it was terrifying. So it was, it was really, and she did that with other stuff, you know, with like Michelle in the courtroom. She knew certain moments that she would look away or look like she was just very, it was really important to her and to the series as a whole to have some of those things really, really right and not in a mimicry way. Uh, obviously, in the Leah Michelle scene, it is a mimicry, but not as Michelle Carter in general, but just as like a Michelle was so unique and, and like some of her physicality was so significant like the way she walks was so significant to the public's interpretation of her that it felt wrong to not have l perform it that way yeah and so it was really it was really impressive but going to the music like i the the only songs that were written into the show i think that song was written in um a song that ended up being the musical performance that's Can't Fight This Feeling was not originally Can't Fight This Feeling. It was a different song that we didn't get the rights to. And then Teenage Dirtbag was written into the show. Yeah. It's fascinating. I just find it so interesting as a writer that every now and then my brain is like, this is it. Totally. This is the song. Yeah. Like, this is super important. And, like, the scene, I can see it everywhere. Yeah. Like, it. that's the magic of it. That's, like, part of the reason I love to do it is, mm-hmm. like, every now and then you'll just be like driving and you're like oh shit that's it i mean that's what happened that's literally what happened with teenage dirtbag is that we had had this idea <clears throat> it wasn't even we it was it was ashley michael hoban who was my who was our number two on the show um she had been pitching we have this thing in the writer's room that i always do called crazy idea hour where for an hour on friday every week everyone is allowed to pitch whatever they want that's fun and they yeah it's it's just free reign no handcuffs doesn't have to be the episode we're talking about. Doesn't have to. It can be about a character. It can be about a scene. It could be truly anything. And she was pitching the tango from Moulin Rouge for about seventeen weeks. <laughs> <laughs> um, like the the there's like one rule in a writer's room, which is if you pitch something, the showrunner says no. Mm-hmm. You get one time more to pitch it, and if you, they say no again, you can never bring it up. It's like the only rule I've ever been taught in a writer's room. And Hoban pitched it for 17 weeks. <laughs> That's because she's not afraid of you. It's true. But she also like what I, but I wasn't actually like that against it. I just, it was like, I didn't see it and mm-hmm. she didn't see it either. And so it wasn't like she pitched the same thing. It was every week she came back and like kept kind of developing it and developing it. And it still wasn't working. And so it wasn't working. And we ha- I was writing episode seven and we had basically this placeholder that was like Moulin Rouge in it. And 
I because I was like, if it's gonna go the show, go on the show. This is literally the last place I can go because then it ends. Um, and I was moving. We had we had bought a house that was like six minutes away from my old house, so I was going back and forth. It was the December break, um, so it was like after Christmas, before New Year's, and I was going back and forth to the house while we were in the process of moving and I was listening to the playlist that I had made and this cover of Teenage Dirtbag came on that's sung by this like Swedish choir and I was listening to it and I was like, oh my God, I think this is Moulin Rouge. Like, I think this is the song we've been looking for and how to do it. And I sort of had, like I took kind of what Hoban had pitched in my head and, and called her and I was like, I think I know how to do it can I tell you? And she was like, sure. And I told her and she was like, start over. <laughs> she was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, so then I, we had switched positions where I was like, no, 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 it'll work. I was like, I, I know it'll work. And um, so we, and then she and I kind of worked on it together for a little while, just bouncing it back and forth to try and crack it and figure it out. And then eventually it made it into the show. And I, I ended up directing it also, which was like my third day of professional directing was doing that. Yeah. If you've seen the show, that's a, beast of a day yeah we shot we, we didn't have a full day we had like eight hours yeah and sure. kids and we had children oh wow yeah. um not tinies but so they're yeah they're, well callie uh who plays um Elle's sister in the show it's amazing she's 17 when she was doing it, and she's the star of that scene so we only had her for eight know. hours yeah um okay so what i'm gonna switch gears a little bit mm-hmm. what is something that um people always ask you and you are so tired of answering is it which side your deaf ear is (laughs) (laughs) um what am i tired of i mean there's things i can't how are you yeah how am i (laughs) um i don't know i mean i get asked about the post a lot like i i get asked about the post a lot um and like sort of like the classic general meeting like tell me how you got your start and things like that um that's definitely the thing that i get asked about the most i don't like i'm not annoyed about talking about it like there's there's i there's very there are very 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 few people in this world who get to have a story like i had with the first movie that i ever sold and it feels like it would be incredibly callous and silly for me to get tired talking about it it's also nice to every now and then remind myself that it happened. <laughs> yeah. So that that feels um, that it's definitely the thing I get asked about. I don't know. I don't think I get. I don't think I'm I mean, annoyed by any questions. Are you ever annoyed because you are constantly working on you know multiple projects at the same time and you can't talk about a lot of them? Sure. Not necessarily with me because <laughs> we're real friends. Uh-huh. But is there ever a situation where you're like, you know, you're at a kid's birthday party and like, so what are you working on? Like, is that yeah. annoying to you? Because it's annoying to fucking me. Yeah. And I'm not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have no job right now and I fucking hate it when people are like, so what are you working on? I mean, I do think the like, what's next question yeah. is mm. is just like a... It feels like a bully. 
it just feels like like it's supposed to be closed ended, but like in this business, there's nothing that's closed ended unless it's like unless on the rare occasion when somebody can be like, "What's next?" and you're like, "Actually, I'm leaving for production in a couple days," or right. like something like that. Like as writers, even if you have something made, like often you're not going, so it's like, "What's next?" Oh, my movie's getting made. Oh, that's great. When are you leaving? I'm not. And then you sort of see like everybody's <laughs> eyes glaze over and lose interest in you, and and it's then you go on to the next thing. So I think like the "What's next?" question <laughs> just feels like. It has um, an expectation to it of it like being exciting Mm -hmm. and like what's next is generally like, well, I'm doing another rewrite on a movie that I've been rewriting for two years. Um, I'm going to sit at my computer for eight hours and try to make it better tomorrow. And then like that's about it, you know, so it's like I, I think I think there's like tons of what's next stuff. And then, yeah, for me also, there's like a lot of times where I just like can't talk about a lot of stuff I'm doing. Not just because, like, I'm not allowed to talk about it, but also, like, I'm super fucking superstitious. So I don't talk about anything unless the deal is signed and done and I've Safe. been paid. Yeah. You should have um, Six Flags sponsor you so that when people ask you that question, you're like, I'm going to Six Flags. <laughs> that's right. I would love that. That'd I would say great. Disney, but that's going to be expensive. Hey, you know, I've done, two sh- you. I've done two shows for Disney. Hey, I'll Disney. go to Disneyland with yeah, you every exactly. time. Come sponsor Liz I'm Hannah. Down. Yes. What are you doing next? I'm going to Disneyland. There you go. Sounds great. I've actually got a question about when you're in the throes of writing on those yeah. eight-hour days. Do you find it difficult to answer the, to field the question, how did it go? Like, I don't know if your husband knows not to ask that question or if that's not like an issue, but like, how's the writing going? Or like, how did it go today? Or did you get anything done? Or do people know to not ask that because you're only surrounded with people who know that it's a grind? Fortunately, my husband is also the, a writer, so like he knows not to ask how the writing is going. Um, I don't think he generally asks me how it's going because I think he can tell yeah. <laughs> by my mood, um, which is just displeasure unless it's finished. Um, but I, I think for me, like I have a... Um, like on vomit drafts and first drafts, I just do 10 pages a day and I don't care if it's good and I don't care how long it takes me. If it takes me three hours to do 10 pages, I'm done and that's it. Um, unless I, in some world, want to continue writing after that. But if it takes me eight hours, then it takes me eight hours. But I just prefer to do like a tangible page count rather than sitting and making myself work for eight hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and then similar to the rewrite process, except it's less like page count and it's more... I guess it is more time, but it's like just till I burn out. I find I'm much easier to self-motivate when it's a rewrite process. Um, And like I find it easy to sort of sit down and then suddenly it's been six hours and you're like, oh, okay, I can sort of be done for today. Um, So that like that. But like the, the actual whether or not I'm able to comment on it being good in the process, it depends like on. I definitely think like the closer I get to the end of the vomit draft, the better I feel. And generally about three quarters of the way through, I'll break something and like something will click and crack open and that will feel really good. Also occasionally Um, like a window. Yeah. A window, a a computer, anything like that. Yeah. Um, If it helps, it helps. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm much better at being able to like quantify and qualify my achievements when it's the rewriting process and like that I feel like I'm getting somewhere and getting better 
and that like when I reread it, it doesn't make me want to vomit. Yeah. Um, that's better. But like, I also just so much of my life has changed and a lot. Like I had a baby a year ago. And so I just, thanks. And so I just like, I have such a different value on my own work than I did 13 months ago. Mm -hmm. I just sort of like, like our nanny leaves at four, he wakes up for his nap and then I just become a mom again. And it does not matter like whether I've done good or bad that day. I just like, um, now I'm with him and that's, that's my life. So that is a strange and wonderful adjustment. Yeah, it's kind of like a nice forced yeah. balance it, that you would yeah. not have done for yourself. No, absolutely not. And but, you still don't. But no. he makes you. Yeah, he definitely makes it easier to um, forget about like not writing well. To remember it's a and, job. Yeah, to remember it's a job. And I also like there has to be some amount of confidence at a certain point that comes in where you're like, I will be able to do this well. It's just like not well right now. I think that for me has always been a good mantra, which is like, it's not good now. It will get better. Like you have the ability to make it better. Um, It's just something right now is making you a very bad writer and that's okay. And so I think there's just understanding it's a process as part of it, but yeah, I sh- I wish I was better at being able to pat myself on the back in the middle of things, but I do that for you sometimes. Oh, I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Anytime you want. I appreciate that. Cough it up. <laughs> <laughs> um okay, so what about what is a question that no one's really asked you or like something that you wish people have always asked you that you never really got a chance to answer? That's a good question. Um, that I don't know that I have an answer for. I, you can hold on to that one. I have another one. Okay. You can just yeah, pocket it. Yeah, think about it. Um, can we talk quickly about the Oscars? Yeah. And how my heart hurts. Oh, you for the, Liz and I have a lot of chronic pain similarities yeah. in this world. And, you know, my girl nominated for an Oscar first movie that, she wrote yeah. is a Steven Spielberg, Meryl Streep, yeah, Best Picture nomination. Yeah, yeah. homies, what? Two days out of day before <laughs> has hip surgery. Oh no, day. I didn't even have hip surgery the day before. I tore my labrum the day before. Oh no, yeah. So I writing, was, yeah, writing. Oh my god, <laughs> it's crazy. It was a freak accident. <laughs> I um, so like. The award season timeline is if if you're fortunate enough to sort of like make it last, it lasts a long time. And it's and it and everyone plays small violin right now. But like it gets really grueling and it's tiring and it's like you're doing something every day, every night. You are having the same conversation with the same people every day, every night. There's a lot. But it's wonderful because you're getting to talk about your movie and all these things. And um we were very fortunate enough to get nominated for the Academy Awards. And I was like, and there's this big, like the night before Academy Awards party. And I was like, I'm not going to go. I was like, I'm going to be a good girl. I'm going to go to bed early. I'm going to just like wash my face, put my pajamas on. I'm going to get some good sleep we were all getting ready together the next day. And I was like, "Mm, yes, doing this right. 
And I literally was putting my pajamas on at like 7 p.m. And I put all my weight on my right leg and I heard a pop and I went down. And I called my husband who walked in. He was like, what are you doing? Because I was not wearing clothing and had like my pajama pants halfway on. But he like walked in and very quickly realized that I was in legitimate pain. I've had back like I've had back pain my whole life. I have like knee problems and all these different things. I was an athlete when I was younger. Mm. And so like, you know, there's all these funky things that click and all that. I in total frankness, my hip had hurt very a lot during the last like four months at this time. But I didn't have any time to go to a doctor and I was ignoring it. Mm. And um, I was like, I think it's fine. Um, but I can't stand up. And he was like, okay. So he, he, somehow we got me into bed. I mean, it was the most pain I'd ever felt my entire life. I, we somehow got me into bed. I took a painkiller and had a glass of wine and I was like, I'm going to go to bed and it'll be fixed and it'll be better. Mm. And I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and was like in excruciate and not even woke up. Like I didn't sleep, but like at about three or four o'clock in the morning, I was like, this is excruciating. And I went to urgent care and, um, it was a Sunday and the doctor was like, you can go to Cedars. I don't have an MRI here or an x-ray machine. Um, so you can go to Cedars if you want, but he's like, I have no idea what you did, but you did something bad. And I was like, well, cool. Thanks, man. I knew that. $120. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but he was like, you can't walk. And I was like, fun fact, I have a very important event to go to tonight. (laughs) And he was like, you can try that, but you, he's like, you could have broken your back. You could have broken your hip. You could have torn something. You could have done any of these things. And he's like, and you'll make it worse. So I didn't go to the Academy Awards. So I sat on the couch and watched, which honestly was like a very lovely end to it. And it's, it it sounds like revisionist history, but like it was very, we, we didn't win. So if we'd won and I was not there, I would have been real fucking mad. Yeah, Mm -hmm. no shit. But, um, we didn't win and it was like a very sort of, I was alone with my husband and we watched it and it kind of concluded this like huge journey. And then the next day I went to the doctor and found out that not only had I ripped my, my labrum in half. But I had hip dysplasia and then uh, four months later had like major, major hip surgery. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. I, for some reason, I thought you had just had the surgery. This no, is yeah. the inciting incident. Yes. Mm. Yes, it was. Yes. Good. Well, good timing. Your body has good timing. Yeah. She knows when you need a break. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things where I definitely Rude, had like but... pushed. I had pushed my body to. A, I mean, I also like, you know, I was constantly working during that time. I'd done. <clears throat> I did. During the post, I was writing my first episode of Mindhunter, and then I went on and was writing Long Shot, and then we got married, and then the post came out. I went on to Mindhunter full time, and then and then and then during that time, I was also working on drafts of Bright Places to try and get financing. So like I was not, and and I did a short film with Dakota Fanning and which was so fun that I wrote with her that she directed. And so then like I was traveling for that also. So there was just like a lot that was going on. It was and a slow phase. It was just, yeah, it was a really, it was a relaxed phase of my life. <laughs> and, um, and it was one, it was one of the first times that I like vividly felt that my body was telling me that I needed to shut it down. And yeah. It had been telling me for a while and I hadn't listened. And I would love to say that I've gotten better at that, but like, well, probably only moderately. I think you have gotten better, yeah. actually. I think that I think the pandemic slowed you down. Yeah. In a good way. Yeah. For that specifically. Yeah. Um, I have to cough again. <clears throat> I'm just giving everyone permission. Yeah. 
good. Um, so this question is from Leah, and I thought it was really good. I, I'm not this smart, so don't think, don't try and up your status in my of me in your brain. Okay. Why? I want to say it right. Okay. Why doesn't success get you power? Well, if you have a vagina, there it is. <laughs> yes, thank you. There's a easy answer to that one. I think it's um, more if you don't have a penis. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it, I think that's fair. Um, why doesn't success not get you power? Uh, because I don't think success is valued. Success is hard because success also happens to dumbasses. So yeah. like in some way it is, I, I do understand why success is not a one-to-one with power because there does have to be an evaluation process outside of just the success. So I do understand it like on, on, on a base level, but then like a lot of those dumbasses have gotten power out of success. So I don't have a ton. Um, it's frustrating. Yeah. I mean, I generally just think I, 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 you know, look, I've had an, I've had an enormous amount of success and I've been really lucky with the people I work with. And I've also had some power and, um, I, so I definitely don't feel like my, I, I don't feel that I am incapable of having power because I'm a woman, but I do think that being a woman in, and not necessarily just a woman being anything other than sort of a cis straight white male in this industry makes it very difficult, makes it nearly impossible to be handed power on a platter. Yeah. I have and, so many concrete examples of that happening yeah. to me specifically as a woman mm-hmm. in the industry. Ugh, sorry to hear that. It's, it's just, it's me too. Yeah. yeah. I've also had one-to-ones where I'm like, okay, so it's me and then there's this guy and you guys went with the guy? Like, yeah. okay. And, and sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's vibes. Sometimes it's experience. Sometimes it's a lot of things. And then sometimes it's that they're the white dude. Yeah. And and so it is that, you know, I think the only thing that we can do about it or that I can try and do about it other than being mad, but I'm not very constructive when I'm mad. So I try to make it (laughs) constructive is make sure that the people who have success are empowered Mm -hmm. and that those people who have success are not the are are in addition to the people who have constantly had success. Somebody recently asked me to put a list together of like my favorite screenplays and my favorite movies. Or it was like my favorite sc- screenplays and then movies that I felt like somebody should watch if they wanted to be a director. Hmm. And like the first seven screenplays I thought of were written by white men. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, look, we can absolutely say that in on one hand it's a reflection of my my lack of complete education of a world in world cinema though i do think i am fairly educated in world cinema but screenplays are hard because i'm mm-hmm. american i can't read in a foreign language and i think it so i think it speaks very specifically to who in the american film industry has been allowed to tell their stories and be storytellers for the last hundred years and it was like it's interesting because it uh, what I don't want it to do is like make me resent those screenplays and those screenwriters because I, I want to be able to acknowledge that that is the history of this country and this industry and every industry in this country. 
but then I want to feel positive that there's change happening and that while that's the past, it's not the present. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily feel that way all the time in this industry. Mm -hmm. I do feel more optimistic than I have, you know, in a while. But um, I think the only thing that can be done is like is making more things and giving more power to everyone who is is an other, I'll say, you know, and um, and not relying on sort of the status quo. Well I love said. that. Yeah. Um, in that world, how do you handle rejection as a writer? <laughs> not well. <laughs> not well, bitch. <laughs> not well. Don't do it well. Yeah. You We're know not what? supposed to. It's not fair. No, it's not fun. It's not fun. No, don't but do like, it well. I know some of the things that, that we do. Mm-hmm. Let's let's just like, you, we don't have to go into it, but mm-hmm. like, sweet baby Brian. Sweet baby Brian. He he helps. He does help. Sweet baby Brian, my Booze husband. Booze helps. Booze helps. I usually give myself a day. Yeah. But it goes longer than that, then it just becomes like a doom spiral of my own self flagellation sorry six flags shouldn't sponsor you it should be writer's tears <laughs> it's true <laughs> i did drink a bottle of that recently i um i but i do like i'll i will give myself like a night and i'll like have some drinks i'll order really good food that i want just gonna say oysters help uh, oysters oh, help yeah. and i'll just let myself feel mad and angry and pissed off and then the next day i'll just get back to work but like i i give myself a day i used to like really dwell in it and it's just not yeah. constructive and um i'm so wildly competitive that then i just want to make them realize they made the wrong decision yeah <laughs> yes they did by the way <laughs> um did you think of a question that you wish people would ask no, you no i don't have one i mm. Can I give you one? Sure. Because I watched a bunch of your interviews oh, and nobody, no, I don't think, off. I don't think anybody asked you where you get your hats. Ooh. Because in a lot of your interviews, you I have do. the, like the most stylish, the best hats. Oh, I you. love She's hats. She's got a hat on right now. I do. It's not, it's, this is a, this is not, it's a dad cap though. It's not, I'm not really working myself. I get them from Gorin. Thank right you for that. Line. Yeah. Thank you for that. My pleasure. Thank you for that question. You're Who welcome. is your favorite person to eat oysters with? <laughs> <laughs> obviously Carrie yeah fuck yeah. you Brian <laughs> just kidding he's always invited <laughs> Oliver's really fun he is really fun he's we, a good little restaurant boy he is with my son we went to a two-hour restaurant like oyster seafood mm. extravaganza with him and he was really good he literally ate french fries for two hours <laughs> <laughs> It was probably the greatest night of his life. He did great. He did great. He, he loved was, it. He was less cranky than I was, and I got everything I ordered. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I'm just cranky. Yeah, I was cranky. Yeah. I support you being cranky. Thank yeah. You. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, those are my questions. Any? I think it goes to Angel. Angel has like... Angel. I Like anything I could have asked, like was answered like so thoroughly. I, I am curious about the guy whose pitch you read who after four pages mm-hmm. had you crying. Like I'm curious if you asked him where he learned how to pitch like that or what his process... I know you're stealing stuff from him, which is no. Like, but super I smart. wish I had. Those would be nice <laughs> things to ask a human being. No, oh. I didn't. I just was like, "Fuck you." This Mine. is really good. <laughs> Mine. <Yeah. laughs> No, but I didn't ask, but I should. Because so, because that's why we're, I'm doing this podcast. I'm like, yeah. how do we pitch, right? There's so many how to write a mm-hmm. screenplay, how to yeah. write a story, books, tutorials, teachers, courses, blah blah blah. Yeah. How do how do these incredible pitches, which 
never see the light of day except for a few people yeah come to existence and some people are excellent at it he comes from the tv world which i do think makes you less precious about pitching um Mm -hmm. you just have to pitch my my husband feels that way too my husband comes from television and so like you you just become way less precious about what you're saying because if you I mean, I think in one way you become very precious about the words you're using because you know that you have a limited amount of time, particularly in a writer's room. It's like, how long do I have the showrunner? I have 30 seconds to pitch this idea. Great. And you become extremely um, diagnostic about what you want to say and what you want them to feel and how you do that. Um, Diagnostic isn't the right word, but we all know where I was going with that. Dialed in. There you go. so I think t- I mean, TV made me a better pitcher um, for sure because I had to really fight for things. And so then in fighting for them, you know, I mean, I when I ran my own show, I was pitching constantly to myself or to Patrick or, you know, like when we did Can't Fight This Feeling, <laughs> I wrote it like I was I was I had pitched it because I was listening to music with my husband and I like had sort of like this vision for this scene and I was like I think this is what it is and so the writer wrote it into the show and the writer of that episode and I remember like reading it and doing a pass on it and stuff like that and Patrick and I were doing our notes on the script and we were going page by page and then we skipped that scene I was like this page and he was like nope and then we made it through and I was like you don't have any notes on this. And he was like, I fully do not understand it. (laughs) Nor do I think it should be in the show, but I don't think that will be received well. So I'm going to just move right past. I don't even think he said it it didn't think it belonged to the show. He was just like, I fucking don't get it. And he was like, but you get it. And you and Sarah Pearson's the name of the writer. She was, he was like, you and Pearson are on the same page about it. So like, I'm just going to leave it alone. And then like, eventually he noted it, but, that just made me mad. So then I pitched him constantly. And I was like, well, what about this? What about this? Um, so I think like knowing that kind of like your life depends on 30 seconds mm-hmm. is really helpful in. While simultaneously towards. not being precious about the 30 seconds. Exactly. Well, so it's like, well, good yeah. luck. Yeah. Well, and about choosing what you're precious about, you know, like I, again, it was like sort of talking about before about writing is like, I'm, I'm, really not precious about the words there's i can be if i feel like it's you know necessary to either the rest of the show or rest of the movie or a super specific character thing i will be precious about like we're talking sentences here but i'm just not like that precious about my dialogue or or things like that and so what but what i am precious about is like the tone of a scene and the tone and the arc of a scene and so if an actor feels like words are garbly in their mouth and they have a different phrase they want to use that has the exact same intention okay great i don't give a shit like sure you're the one saying the words Mm. and like if that doesn't work then let's figure out something together that's fine um but so it's i think it's the same thing in pitching that it's like what are the fewest amount of words possible that I can use to have everyone understand why I will jump like through fire to get this made. Right. Mm. And yeah, or light myself on fire. (laughs) Ah, that's cool. Thursday. 
There, oh, Thursday. That's what I do every Thursday. Yep, exactly. I had mine today, so there you go. There it is. Yeah. I'm good. I'm good, and we're at an hour and a half now, and I'm nice. like, I've gotten so much from this talk. I can so. cough more, so you have more things to cut. <laughs> <laughs> Just what I love to do: edit, edit mm-hmm. more things out. Um, well. We went longer than I thought. We went longer than we I thought we would go. So do you have to go? No, I'm good. Do you want to play a game? Okay. So I have a game that I play with my family or I, I play with my friends mm-hmm. when we're standing in line at Disneyland. Nice. And it's something that you're kind of familiar with. And we go around the room. It's great that there's four of us. Somebody picks a title of a film that doesn't exist. Somebody mm-hmm. picks two actors or actresses that are kind of well-known, dead, living, doesn't matter. And the final person picks the genre of the film. Okay. And then the, the last person pitches the movie or says what the movie is. And it, you can be as bad as you want to be. Like it's kind of stream of consciousness. Okay. I'm horrible at this game, but I love playing it because okay. I don't know. It kind of loosens, it like loosens up your mind. We can't seem to let Liz and Carrie go, but we are going to end this episode right here. We're also going to release Leah's pitch game and all its glory as a standalone special mini episode in our premium feed. So check that out at pitch.supportingcast.fm. Thanks for listening. This has been our chat with Carrie Weisberg and Liz Hanna. From both Lee and myself, cheers from Hollywood. If you're on the fence about subscribing, know that a portion of all subscription fees go toward the nonprofit Young Storytellers, raising voices one story at a time.